Hello and welcome to the Indian Ocean World podcast. My name is Philip Gooding and I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Indian Ocean World Centre, McGill University. I'm thrilled to be joined in this podcast by Dr. Julia Jong Haynes, a Mellon postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Anthropology at Cornell University. Dr. Haynes received her PhD in anthropology from the University of Virginia. She is an anthropological and historical archaeologist whose research focuses on the intersection of inequality, community identities, and landscapes. Specifically, she examines the historical changes to the identities and political ecologies of enslaved and indentured plantation laborers and communities on the Indian Ocean island of Mauritius from the 18th through the mid 20th century, a time when the island was besieged by sugarcane monocropping, deforestation, and village urban development. In collaboration with Mauritian communities, local environmental and cultural resource managers and researchers, Dr. Haynes is also dedicated to integrating archeological research into ongoing public history programs and supporting community-centered heritage projects. Moreover, as a Mellon postdoctoral fellow, she is embarking on an exciting new project entitled Plantations and the Places Between, Settlement Landscapes and Inequality in Colonial Mauritius. Dr. Haynes, thank you so much for joining me to discuss your research, but let's start with some of your existing publications. In preparation for this recording, we were particularly taken by your article in the International Journal of Historical Archaeology, which is entitled Shaping Landscapes, Environmental History, Plantation Management and Colonial Legacies in Mauritius. This article focuses on an area called Bras d'eau, or Arms of the Water. Can you tell us a little more about this research? What is Bras d'eau's significance and what did you aim to examine in your research? Thank you so much for having me, Philip. So I started working in Brado in 2014, um, and I'd like to acknowledge my colleague, mentor, and friend, Corinne Forrest, who uh, was a heritage management and researcher in Mauritius who passed away just this summer. And she's the one that actually introduced me to the site. I showed up in Mauritius in 2014 with strict instructions from my dissertation advisor that I needed to find an archeological site or a sort of project that I was going to be doing my dissertation on. And, and Corinne, when I first met her, she said, you know, I think I have a site for you. So we went to, we went to Prado, which is a national park today, which I'll get back to in a moment. And I was stunned at the number of ruins from a 19th century sugar estate that you could actually still see um, within the existing forest today across the landscape. So that summer with my colleagues from the Mauritius Archaeology and Cultural Heritage Project, directed by Kirstita at Stanford, we started mapping the site and, and so the research sort of went off from there. So, so the focus originally was really to, to look at the history of the sugar estate, to look at the archaeology of the sugar estate, focusing on reconstructing the landscape of the plantation by mapping the existing stone ruins, um, and then finally conducting excavations in the domestic quarter where I was able to see there, there were different types of housing for indentured laborers to live in and then finally examine the material culture that they would have been using in everyday life to understand what domestic life actually looked like in the plantation space. So we found that people consumed globally sourced materials, some sort of ubiquitous ceramics that were produced in Europe and, and imported into Mauritius, but then also objects that likely were brought from South Asia with people on voyages into Mauritius as indentured laborers. So, so that was sort of the original design of the project. Um, but as I was working in Brado for about 17 months straight from 2015 to 2016, 
It gave me the opportunity also to interact and collaborate with park rangers who work in the site today. So as I mentioned, the site is a national park. It was declared a national park in 2011. Um, and all of the rangers and people who care for the site are the descendants of enslaved and indentured laborers. So they sort of have a personal connection to the history of the site, but they also understand the site from a very different perspective than I did. As, as rangers, they care about the forest, they care about the plants and animals that live in the space. So working with them, having conversations with them really changed my perspective, whereas I was sort of originally thinking of the site or the forest as kind of this inconvenient, <laughs> the, the trees were sort of this inconvenient feature of the site where they were they, they disrupted the archeological deposits. Anytime roots or bioturbation goes through stratigraphy, right? It disrupts the, the stratigraphy that we can reconstruct um, archeologically. So the forest was sort of holding this paradoxical position of both sort of preserving the site because it prevented the site from being developed in other ways, right? The ruins are still standing because it's a national park and it was under the forestry, colonial forestry department in the 20th century, but also, in some ways was sort of disrupting the site as well because there's, for example, a mango orchard that's planted in the domestic quarter where we wanted to be excavating. And so a lot of the houses we can't really excavate because there's a mango tree planted right in the center of the forest. So working with the park rangers, having conversations with them made me really think differently about the forest and think differently about the history and the archeology span of the site to sort of actually consider sort of what, what were the different permutations? How did we get from most likely native and endemic forest to a sugar plantation and then into this totally different forest that is completely made up of non-native and non-endemic tree species. That's uh, really interesting. So let's pick up something on about, the, about this forest then. In your article, you speak um, of the trees um, at Brado as artifacts uh, in their own right. And you kind of mentioned that they're both absolutely integral to the site now, but also in terms of the original, the original plans, they're kind of a challenge to kind of overcome. But when you think about them as artifacts, what theoretical modes lead you to this approach or how do you consider them? And what do we discover um, when we think in this direction, um, trees as artifacts? And I suppose what significance do different tree species have when you think about the native versus non-native tree species, which you alluded to uh, at the end there? Yeah, I mean, the idea of thinking about the trees as artifacts, I think, is coming from two places for me. Part of it is really coming from my collaborations with Mauritians in the field and specifically the rangers and thinking about how they are, how, how are they conceiving of the trees, um, but also how are they conceiving of the history of the site itself. One conversation that was very influential for me was with one of the rangers, Mr. Boutry, who mentioned that areas of the site that were that are pine forest today were actually totally forested with eucalyptus trees that were then cut down and put in place and it's like well why why would that happen and he wasn't sure why that the eucalyptus trees were replaced by pine but he said that originally the eucalyptus forest was most likely planted because the trees have roots that go very deep and so they were thought to dry the land out and that was potentially a kind of legacy of the history of epidemics in Mauritius where swampy lands first were conceived of as being miasmic and therefore producing epidemics like cholera and malaria. And then later, obviously, there's this, once we get the association of mosquitoes as the vector, those kinds of swampy lands come to have a different sort of meaning. And so in the 20th century, there were these massive 
this new wave of sort of massive landscape transformation that were directly targeting swamps and waterways to reduce the amount of standing water so that it was reducing the mosquitoes uh, breeding grounds. So understanding the history of the forest actually gives us a really interesting understanding, not just of the landscape history and the ways that we can think about archeological landscapes as being this sort of lens into the history of disease in places like Mauritius, but also the cultural conceptions around landscapes themselves. And how do you manage a landscape in ways that aren't just um, in terms of production or the productive value as you would a plantation. I mean, it took me a long time to sort of think about the forest itself or call it the forest, a plantation forest, because it wasn't until I started going into the, the forestry archives and reading about the reasons why the, the land was reforested that it made sense why all of the trees on site are in these perfect little rows and sort of evenly spaced out, um, even though there's kind of wild underbrush that's growing underneath them. That's really interesting. Your answer there is really pointed to something else which I find really fascinating about your research. That you kind of started off by answering in terms of um, as an anthropologist. You also started out as an archaeologist as well. You also referred to forestry archives. So that's kind of speaks to my training as a historian as well. Mm-hmm. And I know from your article as well, you use the term historical political ecology. Could you speak to, I suppose, your interdisciplinary training or research and how this term historical political ecology um, informs your work and, I suppose, contributes to the the broader scholarship of this past in um, Mauritius from the 18th through 20th century? Yeah, so I think generally historical political ecology, at least by archaeologists, is thought about as referring to the political relationships between humans and non-human entities or spaces in the past. Uh, So in other words, the sort of sociocultural ways that environment and power intersect and then change over time. In archaeology, we typically see this by analyzing people's differential access to resources in the past, so different people's access to water, specific ecosystems that contained minerals or fishing resources, and then sort of that differential access based on one's position in society. Um, And in the article, I posit that time itself, we might also think of as being um, this sort of interesting resource that people had differential access to. So if you think about some of the sort of structural differences between the period of slavery or the experience of slavery and the experience of indenture, one of the most violent aspects of slavery is the fact that it is the time span that it's unending and that it's generationally unending, which is incredibly violent, it's a violently constructed system, right? Indenture itself has a different timescape. People are entering five-year contracts, which could be extended in different sort of coercive ways by the by their employers or the plantation owners. So the question when I was approaching the archaeology of Prado was what kind of choices are people making in terms of the investments in their home, knowing that they're actually leaving the plantation site in five years, at the time that they are living on the space, the space that is not their own and will never be their land, what kind of investments are they making to create a space that feels like a home, knowing that they're ultimately going to be leaving it in five years, right? So it's two different sort of timescales when we think about these two different labor regimes that really defined the colonial history of Mauritius. I think we can also think about historical political ecology as the study of how ecologies and environments were historically thought of in the past also though, right? How were were ecologies 
thought of by colonial administrators based on the socio-political structures of the time. So for example, how did colonial administrators think of the unique ecology of Mauritius? How were they managing water? What were they thinking about water as an, as an ecological source, as a source that is necessary to produce sugar in large quantities? And how was this environmental knowledge also shaped by the institutions of slavery and later indenture? Um, so I think this is perhaps where my work most closely kind of intersects with science and technology studies because we're really thinking about sort of the production production of knowledge specifically circulating around ecologies and environment and for me also these kind of systems of inequality. So I think this this kind of line of thinking is really productive for me because it forces us to kind of denaturalize Western ways of thinking about the land, such as monocrop plantations or land ownership, and really analyze them themselves as systems of knowledge that have very serious political implications for the different folks who lived either within, um, lived and worked within the plantation system, or those who were forced outside of it to live in sort of peripheral or exterior spaces on the edge of of places like plantations once you get sort of land ownership that is really bounding the land in very specific ways. That's really interesting. So one of the things that really comes through in the history of Mauritius, particularly from the beginning of its occupation by the Dutch, is, and we referred to this in the previous podcast that we recorded uh, with uh, Professor Sugata Ray about the dodo, is just the complete degradation of the environment at the, at the hands of colonial settlers and colonial governments. So if we think about the knowledge production and the knowledge systems about how they interacted with the environment, so maybe you could be more specific in terms of Prado, um, how did um, colonial actors um, contribute to environment, environmental degradation at Prado or Mauritius more broadly? And did they recognize that degradation at the time? Does that come through in any of, any of your research there at all? Yeah, that's a great question. In Brado, one of the interesting things that we found both materially and in the archives is just the way that the landscape, I mean, the very fabric of the earth was actually altered in order to produce sugar. The site itself, we don't have a great sense of exactly what the environmental, the ecology would have looked like prior to sugar. We haven't done any reconstructions yet. Pollen in tropical environments is not easy, <laughs> right? The pollen cells essentially degrade to the point where you can't actually identify them. One of my colleagues has been doing, we collected some soil samples and she's pulled out phytoliths, which are actually a little bit more resilient. And so she's been analyzing those. But to actually even plant sugar and a forest in this space, they would have had to use a crowbar and bash through this vestigious black basalt that permeates the entire landscape. It's very, very rocky. It's sort of shocking that anybody even chose to build a plantation here just because compared to other areas of Mauritius, there's just not very much soil. And yet at some point it had one of the largest indentured, South Asian indentured populations in the, uh, out of any plantation in Mauritius. So the question of why put so much investment in this one property is a question I don't quite have a great answer to. So I think there's elements of this sort of material degradation that we don't, when, when we think about the environmental degradation, just, we tend to think about the massive extinction of animals. And I think there's other elements in terms of the material changes that happen to the island that we can think about as well, particularly in terms of the geology of places like this. I think more broadly in terms of the sort of larger context of colonial ideology around environmental degradation, my work has been really influenced by the late Richard Grove's book, Green Imperialism. Um, where he talks a lot about how the French in particular were conceptualizing of 
the changes that were happening on the island. And there was sort of this funny tension between wanting to preserve the environment, particularly to preserve rainfall in order to preserve their sugar plantations, knowing that if they cut down all of the forests in Mauritius, they sort of associated forests with rainfall and needed rainfall to maintain their sugar plantations. So they're sort of simultaneously wanting to preserve forests, but also cut down forests to plant sugar. <laughs> he, he has this, he explains this kind of really interesting tension between both preservation, but also preservation for the sake of further capitalist monocropping, right? Which is in a sense, like the opposite of environmental protection, right? So coming out of that book, I think of these kind of nested legacies in a way of environmental degradation, right? Where we start with, as you mentioned, we start with the Dutch, go through the French period through Richard Grove's book. And then that is really influenced the ways that I was thinking about the forest, the forest landscape and the forest environment today and how the reasons why this, the site itself was potentially reforested in the 20th century and why it was converted from sugar into a forest intentionally by the, the, by the colonial forestry department. Okay, you mentioned a, a few things there. One of the things that, that you mentioned right towards the end was um, the legacies, which obviously implicates the present as well. And I think there's uh, there's kind of two threads, which I'm going to ask separately, actually related to that. The first of this is that your research breaks down a lot of the barriers uh, or, or temporal paradigms based on Eurocentric frameworks um, between slavery and indenture and then colonialism, independence and the present, that there's a longer continuum. And I suppose kind of the kind of the question that's supposed to relates to legacy is how does this long term perspective help to shape your work and your understanding um, of legacy of the, suppose, the deeper past uh, towards the present as well? As you said, I think it's especially important to think about why are we doing this? Why are we studying the past? Why is it important and how is it relevant for the present? And so in this case, when we're looking specifically at one particular site in the history of this site, when we take a long-term perspective, we can reconstruct these kind of different phases of Mauritian archaeology as nested legacies. So the system of slavery gives way to the system of indenture, which ultimately, as I mentioned in the article, gives way to, at least in this site, what I'm calling a sort of somewhat exploitative system called Taunya, which is coming out of Myanmar, Burma, in which formerly indentured people are leased land in order to grow their own crops, but with the intention that they are also providing the labor to actually reforest the site itself. So they can grow, they can grow plants in between the trees that they are, that they are planting and, and propagating for the colonial forestry department in Brado. But this again creates this kind of system of precarity like the indenture system where they spend all this time and labor cultivating the land to grow their own crops. But ultimately, when the trees become big enough and shade the land, they can't use that land anymore and they have to move elsewhere. So this is a form of nested, nested legacies um, in terms of the labor. And I think we can see the same thing in terms of the landscape, right? The land itself is defined the Brado estate itself is defined as a sugar estate with very specific boundaries that we can actually still see today. If you look at drone footage um, that my colleague Krishita took, you can see, even from satellite imagery, you can see the boundaries of the estate because the forest itself was planted inside the boundaries of the estate that were established at the end of the 1700s. So 
again, there's these sort of either palimpsest or nested legacies in terms of the way that the landscape was shaped that the residuals of which we can still sort of permeate today in those kinds of systems. Absolutely. So then the second part of the question about legacy is about the legacy of slavery and imperialism more broadly. And I think anybody researching these kind of topics right now know these incredibly important topics uh, in the current moment in light of global social movements, including Black Lives Matter, Roads Must Fall, and several others, which are really asking not just historians, archaeologists, scholars, practitioners, but also the general public to really consider the legacies of, of slavery and colonialism, their influence on the present. And I wondered, how do you see your work in this most broader popular context? Or maybe as part of that, how does studying environmental change or ecological change fit within this kind of broader reflection on the legacies of slavery and colonialism worldwide? I think often when we think about environmental studies or environmental scholarship, what what often gets left behind or what we often lose sight of are the people who actually end up doing the physical labor to make such changes, right? So behind most environmental degradation, like we've seen in Mauritius, there is also a system of exploitative labor that is based in anti-Black and brown racism that has defined still global labor movements and global labor inequality that we see today. I think often when we focus on the environment, we lose sight of the actual people who are behind those kinds of changes that that are generating the power through exploitation to actually physically terraform an entire island from Mm. a forest with no humans into an island where in a lot of areas of Mauritius, all you see are sugarcane fields. You just see these expanses yeah. of sugar waves of, right, these kind of waves of green. So to me, archaeology is great because it provides us a window into the lives of those people who were incredibly, you know, not by choice, but were actually incredibly important in these kinds of processes of environmental change. And so the question for me is, okay, well, what, what is the culture of that diaspora, what is the, what are the daily lives of those people? What do their intimate spaces look like in addition to what is their place within these larger, these larger expansive landscapes? I think also, you know, Mauritius is an interesting place to work, particularly because of the history of indenture. I think on a global scale, there's been, particularly in the Atlantic, there's been a lot of archaeological, historical archaeological studies of plantation spaces during the period of slavery. And this history of indenture has somewhat been ignored. In Mauritius, it's almost the reverse, where the history of slavery is often overshadowed by the sort of political impetus behind studying the history of indenture. And so when I go to Mauritius, it's important for me to acknowledge the the work and labor that enslaved people did to transform the island. But in academic circles, it's often the opposite where I have to actually express that there's, you know, the 19th century, the transformations that we see in the 19th century were generated by indentured laborers rather than enslaved laborers. And there was, this, you know, demographically, there's far more indentured laborers in Mauritius ultimately than enslaved people. going off on a tangent there a little bit no no it's incredibly powerful and thank you very much for sharing that it's a i think it's a very broad question perhaps an unfair one to ask but you answered it very well thank you very much for that i want to ask i suppose a a kind of a final question 
about your future plans and your what we can see we look forward to seeing you from in the future which i have no doubt will be equally interesting and interdisciplinary um we mentioned um very uh, briefly at the beginning your current project um plantations and the places between settlement landscapes and inequality in colonial mauritius um is there anything you want to tell us about that uh, at this stage and is there what can we look forward to seeing from you in, uh, soon sure so um i think my research is is going in two directions so i'm hoping in the near future to go back to mauritius and actually expect to brando itself and actually excavate more households we were able to identify and map four different long line barracks and about 52 individual structures or houses um, in the domestic quarter. And we've only excavated about 4%, less than 4% of those structures. So ultimately, I need more comparative data essentially to look at those, to, to understand really how people, particularly within the community, inventor community, how are they defining social boundaries um, I'm working on an article right now that thinks through a little bit the ways that caste and notions of caste and purity may have been reflected in the archaeology of indentured, indentured workers in Prado. Continuing the close study of Prado itself, the project that you mentioned that's looking in and between plantations is really, my hope is to achieve this sort of long-term goal that I've had of, of reconstructing the settlement landscape on Mauritius since, since humans first landed on the island in the 1500s um, up to the present and thinking about the ways that social inequality is reflected in the ways that the island itself is settled. So one of the things that sort of anecdotally you can note about the settlement landscape in Mauritius is that often communities descended from indentured laborers. There are these towns and villages that pop up um, that are often named after the plantations that they used to be a part of, whereas a lot of the Creole communities or communities who have enslaved ancestors settled on the coastlines in, in areas where they could have access and make use of the resources of the sea. <clears throat> so there is sort of a very distinct settlement history there in terms of where people are choosing to settle, but also potentially forced to settle based particularly when we start to see the land is being divided up. So that project is really looking at the kind of broader settlement on the island and how things change, particularly as the island is continuously divided into private property and land ownership. That sounds absolutely fascinating. I really look forward to uh, hearing and reading more about that uh, as it comes to fruition. Thank you so much for sharing that and for discussing further uh, your existing research. Um, for listeners who want to find out more, we'll post some links uh, in the description. Before I leave, or before we leave, sorry, I should, I also want to thank um, Sam Glee Riemann, uh, who organized and produced this podcast, uh, to thank you, the listener, for downloading or streaming uh, wherever you are. And uh, once again, thank you to Dr. Haynes. My name is Philip Gooding, and you have been listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast. We would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The Indian Ocean World podcast is produced under the Shirk-funded partnership of Crazy Risk Past and Present. The podcast runs in conjunction with the annual speaker series at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University, Montreal. This was the last podcast of the fall season. Next week, the IOWC hosts Professor Leslie Orr at Concordia University for a talk entitled Slavery and Dependency in Southern India. Please contact the centre for details.